Hey everyone, my name is Sami and I'm a junior at Stevenson High School. So in our first episode, I talk with Dr. Anderson Carpenter from Michigan State University about health disparities among COVID-19. We had a really interesting conversation and I hope you guys enjoy. So I thought we could just start by you kind of introducing yourself and just saying like who you are and what you do. So I'm Dr. Cass Anderson Carpenter. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Michigan State University. Um, my research is in substance use, addiction, and social determinants of health and well-being in marginalized and underserved communities. Cool. So uh, the main reason why I wanted to kind of focus on the coronavirus pandemic was because, you know, it's kind of the most prevalent thing going on today. And I think last time we talked a little bit about how you're working on this stuff more recently. And so my first question is, why are, why do you think that African-American communities are being hit harder, both in like the economic sense and in like the medical sense? So African-Americans um, have a long history in this country of experiencing racial discrimination and racial microaggressions in the medical system. And a lot of us want to think that it doesn't happen anymore. But the fact is, these microaggressions, um, these outright acts of discrimination still happen in the, in the American medical system. And so when individuals experience racism from an entity that is supposed to be there to help them, you know, it, it lowers the, the probability of a future likelihood that they'll want to engage with that system in the future. But also, um, African-American individuals have a greater prevalence or a greater risk for certain underlying conditions, which, mm-hmm. which makes their immune system a little, a little weakened in regard to fighting off um, coronavirus or COVID-19 or any other kind of health condition. And when it comes to the economic side, African Americans earn less than other racial groups, such as white Americans. A couple months ago, the Pew Research Center found that black household income is about $33,000 less than the median white household income. So, the median black household income is is about sixty one percent of the of the mean I'm sorry of the median white household income for twenty eighteen. So that that has a lot to do with it as well. So it's not just the racial discrimination and the fact of having um, a greater prevalence or probability of having underlying health conditions, but it's also that black workers earn less than their white counterparts. And we see this across virtually all sectors of the workforce. But we could also look at um, there being a lack of adequate resources that have historically been allocated to black communities to address the mm-hmm. health outcomes. So um, many of the resources that are that have been continue to be provided to black communities are the wrong kind of resources, or if they're the right kind of resources, they're provided inadequate amounts, and or 
they're given to communities without conducting a community needs assessment. And a community needs assessment would guide policymakers and decision makers in identifying what are the best interventions and what are the best resources to provide. What is the best intensity or amount of resources to improve the health outcomes for those who are most in need? Yeah, I think that income especially can be a really big part of like especially with the economic side about how this is kind of going to cause a recession and income can really affect how much someone like feels the impact of that recession. But do you think that income could have any effect like on the medical side of things? Oh, yeah. So, and I've seen this in my work with HIV. Um, income plays a major role in how much a person might be affected um, by COVID-19. Um, income is one of the primary social determinants of health. And so a social determinant of health, they represent the conditions in which we are born, we grow, we play, work, and live. So income, education, um, economic deprivation, you know, whether we live in a gated community or, or whether we live in, in, in a dilapidated um, house. So things like that, community violence, all those are social determinants of health. And the research has shown consistently for decades that the social factors, these environmental factors, play a major role in our health outcome and can even predict health outcomes. And so people with higher incomes generally have better access or have access to better care. And I've seen this in my work with people living with HIV and that they've noted that it's not so much the racial ethnic discrimination or stigma they felt in the second the sample that for my research, but it's really it's more the fact that they don't have the quote unquote right insurance. Okay. Which which is an indicator of income. And so um, one area I will say that is not getting as much attention, but I think it's equally important when we talk about income and healthcare, is income in mental health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for many individuals in lower income brackets, paying for mental health services is just an expense they can't afford. So if we take a parent or a caregiver who is caring for four or five people in the house, and they're the only person bringing money or bringing income into the household, mental health care may not be on the top five things that's a priority for them. Because they have to keep the lights on, they have to pay the rent or pay the mortgage, they have to put food on the table, and all these other necessities. And mental health care may not be something that they are, you know, and we understand why. We have other, you know, more survival-oriented financial priorities. I think that, like, especially, like, if someone isn't able to pay for healthcare, the cycle just kind of keeps going and going, and there's really, becomes very difficult to break out of it, like, as, like, the generations go down. And do you think that, like, a big event like this can really, like, has the power to change things for the better? I think um, a pandemic or just a public health crisis, I think it can be 
an opportunity if it's perceived as an opportunity. If okay. public health agencies and decision and policy makers see the opportunities for growth. And what I mean by that is this. Um, by and large, public health crises like a pandemic, it increases, they increase disparities, and more precisely, they lay bare the existing disparities yeah. in such a way that the public had, would have a more difficult time in ignoring those disparities. And so with the disparities being laid bare for all to see, it's actually an opportunity for policy makers at the local, state, federal level and decision makers to come together and say, look, we see the disparities. What can we do in our positions of power and privilege to reduce these disparities? What resources, what supports do these affected communities need that we can provide them to help them lower the disparity rate. So in that in that sense, it can be an opportunity. But it is only, it would only be an opportunity if policymakers and decision makers and people in positions of power, privilege, and influence see it as an opportunity and really work toward achieving health equity. Yeah, I think like like, honestly, one of the best ways that this whole pandemic could be taken is if people do, you know, view it as an opportunity. And so kind of going off of that, what do you think currently, like, what are people doing or are people even, like, really trying to bridge these gaps? I think people are trying to bridge the gaps. Um, we know that social distancing is key as far as, you know, helping to mitigate the disparity. Um mm-hmm. The thing is, there's so much we don't know about the virus. Yeah. So we do know um, recommendations from the CDC and the World Health Organization. They Those recommendations are some easy behavior change strategies that we can implement at the individual level. Um, as, far as, as far as bridging the gaps for some of the communities that are hardest hit, um, there is a lot that's being done as far as advocacy at the federal level, the state and local levels, providing, you know, spaces for uh, people who are experiencing homelessness, for example, to go where they can have a place that is sheltered, that is still, you know, where they can have a space that is six feet away from others. So social distancing is just, is not just something that you and I can practice, for example, can practice individually, but it's also a concept that can be implemented in other sectors of the community. Yeah, I think that's really important. Like, a lot of times people think that, like, social distancing, like, it's easy for someone like me to do. Like, I can just stay home and, like, everything's fine, right? But I think a lot of people don't understand that, like, some people might not even be able to do that or they need to go to work even if their job might not be considered essential just to like be able to make the money that they need to make. So um, do you think there's anything that like just the regular person can do, maybe even once this is all over, to kind of help this? 
I thought about this a great deal, and aside from social distancing, because mental health is, I predict is going to be a big issue um, related to COVID-19, mm-hmm. keeping in touch with friends and loved ones, reaching out to people, um, establishing and maintaining a social support network, and leaning on those people in our social support networks can really help psychologically and emotionally. They're taking care of ourselves, whether it's physically, by getting exercise, that we can, if we, if we can go outside, you know, take a walk around the block or something, um, or even just sitting outside and enjoying nature. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can't go outside for whatever reason, you know, doing stretches and yoga and other kinds of physical activity, We're taking care of ourselves emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and all those other kinds of ways that make up who we are. I was going to say this is especially important for individuals and communities that are especially hard hit. Uh, for, for example, trans and gender diverse individuals, people living with HIV, indigenous communities, people with disabilities, people experiencing homelessness. These strategies, these tips, are especially important because those communities are already not part of the quote-unquote mainstream society. And in in a lot of resource allocation, those are the communities that are often overlooked and are you know, pushed to the side and are given consideration when it comes to resource allocation. And so having these built-in networks and establishing and maintaining those networks can really go a long way in helping minimize some of the mental health um, risks that may come along with COVID-19. Yeah, I think also along with mental health for people like of the like that are affected by the virus, but also for like frontline workers and essential workers is also really important. And I was wondering, like, do you think that there's anything that like doctors or any kind of frontline workers can do in regards to that? Or would it just be the same as like the same like guidelines for everyone else? Similar guidelines, but I think it would be a little different for those who are on the front lines. Uh, so, for example, um, having a so- the social support network, for example, might be, the configuration might be a little different. Mm-hmm. So their social support network might be other professionals in their line of work. Um, as, you know, I am not a police officer, so I don't know what it's like to be on the front lines of of a pandemic as a police officer, as a firefighter, or as a paramedic or EMT, or as a as a nurse or a physician. I don't know what that's like, but others in those positions do know. So even forming, it could be even informal social support networks. Those kinds of networks um, where they can talk about what they're feeling in a space where they're not going to be judged, where their experiencing will be validated. Those are really helpful in helping them maintain emotional and psychological health. 
Yeah, of course. And I also like was wondering whether like how do you think that like doctors specifically, even after this is all over, how do you think that they can kind of personally work on like checking their biases when it comes to race and especially when it comes to income? Yeah, that is a very good question, and it's one that is, that's been asked a lot. What I, what I teach on implicit bias, and when I give lectures and talks and workshops on it, I often invite people to take Harvard's implicit association test of the IET, I and mean, I've taken it multiple times over the past like, 10 years now. Um, and what it does is it allows us to see what our biases are. Because we all have them. Mm-hmm. We all have biases. And often it's those implicit, those subconscious biases that we don't realize we have mm-hmm. that we often you know, commit microaggressions with other individuals based on those implicit unconscious biases. And so when we understand what those biases are, we see what our implicit biases are, then we can can start educating ourselves on those, on people from those groups, um, speaking with people from those groups, and coming into those conversations not from a place of trying to obtain or trying to attain cultural competence, which says, oh, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to this group of people, but really from a sense of cultural humility, which is kind of flipping it on its head, which is more along the lines of, I'm coming into this space as a learner. I want to learn about such and such culture. These are my my biases, these are my assumptions, and I want to learn so I can be better educated and that and so I can be in a better position to serve people from all walks of life. That's really interesting. I've never like I've heard of cultural competence a lot before, but I've never heard of cultural humility. And I think that like that definition kinda needs to change and a lot of people should kind of be focusing more on the humility part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um do you have anything else you want to say or but I, I would say that for those who are working on the front lines, thank you so much for what you're doing. I know that it comes at a great cost, um, physically, psychologically, emotionally. Um, we are, we all stand with you. Um, we are here to support you in every way that we can. And for those communities that are hardest hit, we hear you. We hear you and we want to help. And the burden is not on you to tell us how to help. The burden is on us, those of us with power and privilege and resources, to come to you and ask the question, how can we help you? Yeah, I think that's a really good closing statement, and I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, This was a really interesting and insightful conversation, and thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and make sure to come back next time. Bye!